Welcome to the Honor the Gift Podcast. I am your host, Art McCracken. I specialize in transformational leadership and high-performance coaching. I've worked with hundreds of companies and thousands of individuals along the way, helping them achieve greater outcomes in all aspects of their life. I'm a speaker and writer, but at the end of the day, none of that holds a candle to being a husband, father, and friend. I believe the greatest gift in our mortal existence is the gift of choice. How we honor that gift will shape the eternities. I also believe that career is a way of being and not just a way of life. And when you figure that out, by learning to let go of the charades and leaning into growth, life just seems to unlock itself. I know this because I've lived it. Quite simply, my calling is people experience living true. Thank you for being here. Thank you for making the commitment to lean into growth. I honor your journey. Now, let's do this. Hello, friends, and welcome to another weekly episode. In this week's episode, I am so excited to have two dear friends that have been instrumental in my own life. They've had a a tremendous impact through their work in the field and study of drama and the application of drama in both our homes and organizationally and in our communities. So I'm excited to have them as guests this week. Uh, We have David Emerald and his sweetheart, Donna Zajon. And we're going to split this podcast into two halves. David's going to lay a strong foundation for us relative to uh, drama and the empowerment dynamic, the three vital questions. We'll learn more about that here shortly. That'll be the first part. Second part, we're going to get some application around these principles and foundation. Donna will take us through some of the coaching application and some of the challenges that coaches face in teaching and implementing some of these principles. And so I'm excited to hear from both of them. Again, it's it's truly a gift for me to have them on the show today. So David, welcome to the show. Glad you're here. Why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself? I promised you that I wouldn't attempt to introduce you because I don't want to butcher that or give anything that's incorrect, but you have a tremendous background and a lot of life experience that's brought you here and certainly in our relationship as well. And so thank you for being here. I'm going to give you the mic and let you introduce yourself. Awesome, Art. Thanks. I'm delighted to have this conversation with you and we do go uh, quite a ways back. So uh, I am David Emerald and actually David Emerald is a uh, is a pen name. Um, my actual last name is Wommeldorf. Hence, you can understand why I came up with a pen name uh, and uh, at Donna's suggestion, actually adopted the pen name of David Emerald because we live in the Seattle area and Seattle's known as the Emerald City. So um, that's why the my books are published uh as under the pseudonym of David Emerald. And my background art is uh, is I've spent the last three decades plus uh, in the fields of initially in uh, communication, employee communication, public relations, but that was only the first few years of my career and then transitioned into training and development, organizational development, and then eventually really into leadership and executive development and have been on my own as a solo practitioner or uh, independent practitioner because because Don and I certainly are business partners, but I started on my own back way back in 1997. Uh, I have a master's degree in applied behavioral science, which really uh, helped me really look at uh, how we behave as human beings and how we behave in organizations and how we uh, interact and how we think. Uh, so that that's a bit about my background. Why don't I go ahead and talk a little bit about how I got into this work of, uh, around drama? Unless yeah. you have any questions for my no. background. No, I think that's great. I think that's a great place to start. I, I know that your work has definitely dovetailed into uh, a very finite study of drama, which a lot of people, you know, our listeners are probably like, well, why do we want to talk about drama? We usually avoid drama and uh, drama has an interesting play in much of our lives. We we certainly all experience it. But let's start there. What's the genesis yeah. of your work around drama? First, let me kind of, uh, not that I have an operational definition of drama, but let me start with when, we, when the drama we're going to talk about is not like the drama we see in movies, the drama we see on television, although some of what I will describe we see as the framework for a lot of those uh, sources of drama. But the drama that we're focused on is really the drama that shows up 
between individuals and or within teams, et cetera. And so drama can be anywhere from, you know, a mild interaction of, you know, I'm, I'm a little ticked off at you um, to, you know, real fear and terror. Uh, so I just wanna, wanted to start with a little bit around what we mean by drama. And the genesis for me is actually quite personal, uh, even though my work has been in both what I call self-leadership and primarily organizational leadership. And it's personal because about, about 30 years ago, um, I went through a series of personal events that really make up the character David would, and we'll talk about the, the book and the drama triangle here in a few minutes, but the, the character David in The Power of Ted, in that in about an 18-month period, I experienced uh, three uh, events that really had deep impact in my life, uh, and in that sense, drama in my life. And that was um, my dad passed away uh, at a very early age, and uh, I had a very healthy and close relationship with my father. And at the time, my wife and I, or my wife at the time, uh, she and I were trying to start a family, and long story short, found out that I was declared medically infertile, and as a result of that, uh, she was quite introverted, and so she really withdrew, wouldn't consider other options, so our, our marriage dissolved. And I share those with you because one of the healthiest things I did and one can do when facing those sorts of dramas in one's life is I sought out support uh, and at that time and in that context with a therapist. And I was introduced to what is classically known as the Cartman Drama Triangle, which in our work we have, uh, with his permission, with Dr. Stephen Cartman's per permission, we call it the Dreaded Drama Triangle or DDT because of the toxic nature of the relationships that make up the drama triangle. So that's really how I got into the work of drama was actually, uh, even though I was already doing leadership work, it was out of my personal life. Excellent. And, and I think that's important for us to note. Uh, I have been very fortunate to have read through The Power of Ted, which is, I believe it's your first book that you wrote, yes. uh, understanding that it has it's a representation of your personal journey, and I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful piece. It's something that impacted me immediately, and I've been through that a couple times and have taught extensively from that work. And I know that uh, we'll talk about some of your other works as well, but important to note, sometimes the, the things that we go through in our life, the biggest events that change our world and the way we view our world are sometimes also the thing that not just becomes a, a an event that we go through, it becomes a new paradigm. Well, I was going to say absolutely. And uh, in the preface of the um, of the, the book, there is what I call the story behind the story. So I'm just going to give, frankly, the, the punchline here. Yeah. Uh, and, you, and you know about this is that as I was working with that therapist, after several months, um, the drama triangle, which we'll describe in just a moment, was so present for me. And the central role of the, the drama triangle actually probably makes sense for me to outline the characters real quick in the, the drama triangle. And then I'll, I'll share a little bit about that personal epiphany. Yeah, let's do that. So yeah. you mentioned Stephen Cartman's work, uh, yep. mm -hmm. Dreaded Drama Triangle. Why don't we go through, let's identify as a foundation again, the, the core characters of drama, yep. and then mm -hmm. we'll let you take the flip side of that and teach us. Yeah, oh, Great. Thanks, Art. The central role of the drama triangle, the DDT, is the role of victim. And very important distinction as, a, as an important side note is we really make the distinction between victimization and victimhood because victimization is something that we all experience as human beings, you know, whether it's, oh gosh, I'm, in, I'm stuck in traffic again. Um, and I, I think about victimization on a scale of one to 10, that's probably a one and 10, all we have to do is to, uh, to turn on the news and we can see all kinds of examples of people who are experiencing victimization at the, uh, the really, it could be violent or just, um, you know, life-changing end of the scale. That's different than victimhood, which is a way of being, a way of kind of self-identity. And this work is a really a, a, what we call a challenger to victimhood while acknowledging victimization. So I want to make that distinction. But the central role is the role of victim. And we're in the victim role anytime we feel um, hopeless and, frankly, anytime we find ourselves uh, complaining. 
um, because there's something that we care about that we feel like we don't have access to. And in order to be a victim, one must have a persecutor, which is the second role. And the persecutor could be a person. It could be a condition like a health condition. It could be a situation like a natural disaster. But it, that becomes really the central focus to the victim because it takes their time and, and energy. And um, and the dynamic gets uh he gets put in the place between the persecutor and the victim. And then the third role, which uh, is the role of rescuer. And the rescuer, again, very often is a person. But I want to emphasize that the rescuer also uh, could be things like um, obsessions, addictions, uh, anything that helps the victim kind of numb out from their sense of victimization or and or what I call the, the hero rescuer who inserts himself, himself or herself and uh, tries to either fix the victim or protect the victim from the uh, from the persecutor. So the the roles are victim, persecutor, rescuer. And then to share very briefly the that story behind the story, as I was working with a therapist, I remember one morning doing what I call my quiet time, uh, combination of prayer, meditation, very often journaling. And I was journaling at the time, coming out of contemplative prayerful space where the following uh, epiphany occurred to me. I remember sitting there closing uh, with my eyes closed and uh, saying prayerfully to the God of my understanding, I said, okay, God, I'm, I am ready to surrender my victim stance in the world, but I need to know what's the opposite of victim. And immediately the word creator came into my mind. And again, I could go more deeply into that. That is in the, the, the preface to the book. But that was, you know, I wish I could say like Paul, Paul on the road to Damascus, my life was forever changed. That's really not uh, not how it evolved for me. It was uh, a, a personal insight that um, percolated for well over a decade uh, until I had an experience that I shared with Donna. And Donna, I have to credit, I often call her the mom of uh, Ted or the empowerment dynamic, which we'll talk about next, um, who really encouraged me and said, you've got, you've got to write this down for other people. The, the loss of my dad, uh, not being able to have kids, the dissolution of my marriage were all persecutors in my life at that time. And I certainly felt victimized by my life experience. Thank you for that uh, foundation and, and getting us started and understanding those characters. Um, I think I'll save a question for Donna later, but I want to use this as a space holder because we'll talk about this to some degree, and that is how drama shows up for us both internally, because we can continue to perpetuate drama internally with ourselves, playing each of those roles, but also externally, and, and we just talked about some of that. I want to dive into that a bit more, so we'll make a placeholder for this. We'll grab Donna on that question uh, on the internal and external variations of how that maybe shows up for us. So, David, let's sure. continue on. Uh, you had a big a big aha and it was the counter how do mm -hmm. i how do i move from drama into a different state yeah and, and that and that different state we would call empowerment at this point yeah and so when i had that epiphany uh and the immediate um inner voice and could have been almost outer voice of that the opposite of victim is creator which by the way came as a huge surprise to me i didn't know what to expect but i didn't exp expect that word that became the genesis if you will or the planting of a seed that over time emerged into what we now call tether the empowerment dynamic and what happened is that as i as i had this decade plus of kind of percolating and, and frankly at times i could go sometimes a year or so without even really thinking about it but i i would sometimes journal well gee if creator is the opposite of victim is there an opposite to persecutor um and to rescuer and then uh as donna encouraged me to expand on the the alternate triangle or what we now call the antidote to the toxicity of the DDT, what emerged through a number of conversations, a number of, of morning quiet times and contemplation and uh, prayer and real support from our uh, book consultant and editor, what emerged as the alternate roles that are in the power of TED is again, that the antidote to the role of victim again, where we feel powerless, is the role of creator, of being a creator in our lives. And there are two main aspects of being a creator. One is 
being able to uh, clarify and envision the outcomes that we want to create in our lives and in our work. The other part of being a creator is really owning our capacity to choose our response to whatever shows up in our life experience and really being at choice. So it's about envisioning outcomes and choosing our response to what happens in our lives. And, you know, stuff does happen in our lives. And there are are times where we do feel victimized. But rather than reacting to those experiences as persecutors, the antidote to the role of persecutor that shows up in TED is the role of challenger. And the idea of challenger is that challengers are those people, situations, conditions that sometimes are really welcome and really uh, positively supportive of us. Sometimes they are unwanted and unwelcome. But what they what challengers do is they call forth learning and growth. And so even when they are the unwanted, unwelcome um, sort of challengers, the ability as a creator to step back and say, okay, what's here for me to learn? Um, what's being, what am I being called to, to change in my life as a result of what's showing up? And then I also certainly want to acknowledge that, that all of us can look back at our lives or maybe currently in our lives have, whether it's a coach or a teacher or a parent or a grandparent, um, someone who very consciously and deliberately acted as a positive challenger for us uh, to call forth that learning and growth. And then the supportive role in the empowerment dynamic is as the antidote to the role of rescuer, which by the way, rescuers are usually very well-intentioned, but the, the shadow or unintended consequence of rescuing is it often reinforces the powerlessness of the victim. Whereas in TED, rather than rescuing people, it's the role of coach. And it's and, and in a sense, you can think of coach with a small c uh, in that it does not have to be a professional coach. And certainly Donna, who you're going to be talking to, is, uh, uh, is absolutely a professional coach. Um, but it, what a coach does is sees the person that they are supporting as a creator in their own right, whether they are acting like it or not, whether they know it or not, and they support by asking questions, asking questions about what's the outcome that you... want to go after or how might you choose to respond to a situation Um, and asking questions around really getting clarity around current situations and and asking questions uh, around commitments to what we call baby steps and moving forward so again in summary the the antidote to the ddt roles of victim persecutor rescuer are creator challenger and coach very good what Tremendous insight uh, that comes from that. And I think as I've also coached in this space and really looked at this model of, of drama and empowerment, the, the concept of creation and I think also the concept of co-creation mm-hmm. uh, certainly comes into play, not just from a coach-client standpoint, or a peer-to-peer mentorship, but organizationally and, and in our lives, I think we we have challenges where we come in and out of this. And, and what I've found, and I'll let you speak to this, it's such a fine line between these at times. It's so easy to be on one side or the other, to either be in drama, and oftentimes we maybe don't feel like we're in drama, the, the role of a rescuer, we feel like we're being helpful. There's other ways to be helpful and to not be in drama. And so I find that those those lines are so finely drawn between drama and empowerment. Will you speak to that for just a moment? Sure. What I want to do is, to, in order to answer that, is take just a moment to talk about the mindsets that Um, are behind those two sets of dynamics. Because the mindset in the DDT, the drama triangle, the mindset is what we use an acronym of FISB that stands for what we focus on engages in an interstate that drives behavior. So the drama really thrives and is produced and perpetuated in a mindset that is problem-focused, anxiety and fear-based, and reactive in nature. Whereas the uh, empowerment dynamic is uh, really 
requires an upgrade in what we call the human operating system. We refer to FISB as a human operating system, where our focus is on outcomes that we that have heart and meaning for us and that tap into our passion, our love-based passion, that then drives the creative behaviors um, through what we call baby steps. And I wanted to share that because it is absolutely, first of all, about co-creation out of that, that mindset. And when we talk about those mindsets, we often teach them first and first as either or, and it's easy to hear it as I'm either this or I'm that. It's, it's uh, I think, much more productive to see it as a continuum because as human beings, we're all at times going to go reactive. We are all at times going to find ourselves in drama-based interactions. And the real key is being able to recognize it, pause, and I know Donna will talk a little bit more about this as well, and then make a shift to, so how do I choose to respond to this moment? So it, it is a fine line, and and by the way, the shift does not have to be from victim to per- creator. It doesn't have to be from challenger to persecutor or from rescuer to coach. One could say, oh, I'm, I'm rescuing my teenager, uh, or I, I could step into the coach role and ask questions, or I could be a loving challenger and say, you know, here's, I, I need to challenge uh, your behavior, what you're thinking or what you're doing, um, and then maybe move into the creator role. So there is some necessary fuzziness because human being, as human beings, we move in and out of these, all of these roles from time to time. And the real key is to become aware of what role am I playing? What, what, uh, how am I interacting in this particular moment? And again, whether that is at the, the the personal level or the organizational or professional level. Thank you, David. So organizational. Yeah. Let's let's shift gears just a little bit. Yeah. As you've continued to do such tremendous work, you came out with a newer book. Uh, it's been a few years now. It seems new to me because it is always on my mind. But another acronym that I always have sitting in front of me is 3VQ. 3VQ. What is 3VQ? <laughs> 3VQ stands for uh, three vital questions. And I certainly will explain those questions in just a moment. Uh, and uh, by way of transition into organizational, what I will say is the power of TED as a book is really about self-leadership. So it's a, it's more personally focused. The, the context is uh, around personal uh, and what we call self-leadership, whereas the three vital questions is in an organizational context. Both books, by the way, are fables. They're written as stories. And um, rather than go into the, the, the context of the stories, what I'd say is the three vital questions actually transcend and include, meaning that they the, the three vital questions contains the same principles and practices that are in the power of TED, uh, but re reframes them slightly. So here are the three vital questions. The first vital question is, where are you putting your focus? Are you focusing on problems or are you focusing on outcomes? And that goes back to the mind. That's the mindsets that I referred to just a few minutes ago, which, by the way, eventually really gets recast as the problem orientation gets recast as a victim orientation because we feel victimized by the problems we're reacting to. And the outcome orientation gets recast as a creator orientation. And that then leads to the second vital question, which is given the mindset, the second vital question is, how am I relating? How am I relating to others? How am I relating to my life experience? And frankly, to your inner your point about the, the inner DDT, how am I relating to myself? And I'm, am I relating in ways that produce or perpetuate drama? And that is going to be what happens when my mindset is in that problem-focused victim orientation. Or am I uh, relating to others in my experience uh, in ways that empower others and myself to be more resourceful, resilient, and innovative by being co-creators, by frankly being co-challengers and co-coaches in my relationships with others. And then the third vital question is totally around how do we put this into practice, but to, to connect all three of the questions, if I'm operating from a problem focus and I'm engaged in the dreaded drama triangle, then the answer to the question which is the third question of how, what actions am I taking? The actions in that stream, if you will, 
is that I'm just going to be reacting to the individuals I'm, engaged, I'm, I'm interacting with, and I'm going to be reacting to the problems and the anxiety that I'm feeling. Whereas if I am consciously operating uh, from that outcome-focused creator orientation and seeking to really develop my uh, capabilities as a co-creator, challenger, and coach, then the question becomes, how do I stay focused and how do I take action in service to creating those outcomes? And I w- want to add, this work does not deny or minimize the reality of problems in our work and in our lives. It does is it says, let's be conscious of the problems that we need to really tackle that stand in the way of what it is that we want to create. And so we've got the capability as uh, co-creators and as challengers and coaches to determine what are those problems that stand in the way and uh, also very importantly, what's going well that we need to continue to uh, leverage and focus on and not lose sight of. So the third vital question, again, is what actions are you taking and are you taking actions, uh, including the solving of problems in service to creating outcomes? Uh, I think that one of the things that's interesting for me is that both models, actions can be taken, actions to perpetuate or to continue in something. If we're looking at continuing in creation, the actions would certainly create opportunities for future growth, future development, future circumstance that would be maybe more beneficial or more contributory to the environment. Actions that we might take in drama tend to be more closed, more self-perpetuating. And where I see this show up in the work of assessments and grounding our assessments, what I find is that when we make blanket statements of condition, maybe make a proclamation that I can't trust that person, mm. it I believe that it's coming from a place of of story, of bias, of identifying ways that I'm being either victimized or it's a shortcut to not allow ourselves to be creators. Because if, if we're going to make an assessment that's blanket like that, we've actually closed off any hope for future action. And if we'll take the time to actually ground the assessment and say, okay, I don't trust this person, where do I not trust this person? Do I not trust this person with brushing their teeth in the morning? Do I not trust that they'll go to the bathroom when they need to go to the bathroom? Do I not trust that they can drive their car from point A to point B? And those might seem like odd questions, but if we're able to look at our assessments and look at our evaluation of those external to us or even ourselves, sometimes we find that those assessments are weakly grounded, that there, there really isn't any grounding. So if I can look at it and say, okay, well, I, I guess I can trust them with that and I can trust myself with this thing, what are the things that I might not trust? Now it leaves an opportunity to actually address that and, and to work with that. And I think that's where we're starting to move into this creative uh, or creator mindset is looking at it and saying, what's mine to do? What, how am I relating to this? What's my next step? What can I create? What can I build from this? What opening for future action is possible? And so I, I really appreciate those three questions. And again, I, I find myself, I have them written on my office wall. I have since I read the book. I used them the other morning in a meeting with uh, some executives that we were working together to solve some problems. And those three vital questions were a part of that. And I think that Again, they force us. What I, what I love about a great question is when when we engage our mind in a question, we start to look for solutions. Mm-hmm. And if we don't ask ourselves the question, we don't put that in our forefront to even consider. We just we're we're not in the mode of creation. We're not in the mode of solving for something. And so I love the basis of good questions. So walk us down the road a little bit more. Three BQ organizational application moving beyond self and and smaller. Uh, dynamic. I should say smaller mm-hmm. dynamic, but more cozy dynamic. And now it's okay. I'm at work, and I right. have challenges with my coworkers, and maybe I have challenges with what I'm able to accomplish or not able to accomplish. Walk us through some of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I first of all, I love your personal example that you just used, and I'll just take the the challenge of trust into more of an organizational context. And let's say that. I have a coworker that is, you know, consistently misses deadlines or, I don't know, does what I consider I assess as sloppy work. Um, and it would be easy uh, to, again, as you said, to assess and say that I don't trust this person. 
part of the challenge and, and really the unlocking key, if you will, of moving from a problem focus to an outcome fro- focus and from the DDT to TED is to pause and to, to, to really ask the question, what is it I care about and what do I want? So if I'm not trusting and I'll if I'm not trusting an employee or an employee, whether it's a coworker or somebody reports to me, the value that that I really hold is a value of meeting commitments. And so that so rather than seeing the the, the problem and kind of griping about complaining about they keep mi- missing deadlines and reacting to that, if I can shift my focus to you know the importance of commitments and meeting deadlines, then I can have a much more empowered and uh, positive, frankly, conversation with that individual and say and to share. I don't want to wordsmith here, but to share. You know, here's what I'm noticing, which is a description of current reality, and doing that in a way that doesn't land as blame and judgment, and to say, you know what. I really want and what's really important and to lay out why it's important is that that we commit and that we meet deadlines and and to be able to say you know I'm going to pretend that you art uh, uh, is that uh, art I I would rather you tell me that you can't meet that particular deadline as we're setting things but uh, and rather than getting it to the end of the uh, getting it to me the end of this week if you tell me I can get it to the end of you next week and over time I can really start to see that you're meeting those commitments we're building a much more collaborative co-creative relationship but the, so what, where I'm going is that the real key is that when we feel triggered, when we feel those kind, when we have those kinds of assessments come up, the the real key is to step back and say, what is it that has me get triggered, and what is it that I really care about, and to shift my focus to how do I communicate and or um, plan for going after what it is that I really care about. And I know we're running short on time, so let, there are two two statements that have become increasingly important to me and to us that um, that I think are important to share. One is that the reality is we cannot not create. And that the question is, are we creating consciously or are we creating out of habits and unconsciously without thinking about it? Um, because anytime we have a conversation, anytime we're taking any kind of action, we are creating consequences of those actions. And then the second uh, phrase is, frankly, we cannot not choose. And um, being a creator, again, is about choosing both what we care about and what we want to go after in our work and lives and choosing our response to what's going on in our lives. And if we choose not to make a choice, we've made a choice. So um, I just want to kind of anchor those in is that, that it's all about becoming aware of to the best of our ability and it takes place over time. And you know as well as I do, or I know as well as you do, that this is lifelong practice. And it's, um, and it's not the flipping of a switch. It's uh, if, as long as it's two steps forward to, two steps, uh, to one step back, uh, we're making progress. Thank you for that, David. You you bring up something that's very near and dear to my heart, and that is the realization that, in fact, it's a belief that I have, and that is that choice is the greatest gift that we have in our life. Absolutely. And we, we're faced with thousands of choices every day. How we choose and the way we learn to govern our choices and be more intentional about those choices, be more reflective of those choices, I think that it has legacy impact for generations. So yes. I appreciate that that insight on, on choice. A couple of last minute things. And as you mentioned, running short on time, I wish that we weren't because I think we could spend a week in conversation <laughs> and on this topic. It's such a, a fascinating perspective. And so thank you. one question that I ask every single guest is what does living true mean to you? And it's an awesome question. And what living true means to me is um, is clarifying again over time. I am a big fan of people developing their personal life vision. 
you know what what is it that uh, has heart and meaning and the the uh, the little exercise that I sometimes have people do and I'll do a brief description of this uh, and it's a variation on uh, Dr. Stephen Covey's um, I can't remember the way he frames it the way I frame it is I have people imagine that they are magically attending their hundredth birthday and gathered around them are uh, their family, their friends, their their work associates, and one by one they they raise their coffee cup or they raise their their glass and they offer toasts. And what is it that you want to hear them saying as they toast you and the impact you've had on their lives? That really can help uncover what is living true about, and then using that as kind of the North Star and knowing and having the self-compassion that sometimes we veer from that North Star. We're not always making choices that are consistent with it. And again, because it's it's a lifelong process, but by having that North Star, by, by living true to that envisioned life outcome uh, has great, great power for us as uh, creators in our lives. Appreciate that. Tremendous insight. As we wrap up with this half of the episode with you, David, a couple of things. What are you most excited about right now? And then where can people find you and learn more about this? What I'm most excited about right now is that are, we have a growing community of uh, certified Three Vital Questions trainers. And I share that because uh, Donna and I are uh, really focused, uh, in addition to our day-to-day work, on what do we need to uh, have in place so this work continues to be of service to future generations. And that is going to be first and foremost through our community of certified trainers. And we have an amazing, uh, I think it's now about 120 people who have, uh, who are doing this as either their sole focus for most people, it's a part of their practice, whether they are uh, internal to companies or solo practitioners as trainers and coaches. And I know Donna's going to be talking more about coaching. And where people can find, uh, uh, frankly, either one of us is what we have two websites. One is powerofted, all one word, dot com. And uh, what's on the power of TED is really focused, again, on self-leadership and is a little bit more personally focused. And it links to three vital questions, and that is the numeral three vitalquestions.com, which again is more organizationally focused. Although I, I dare to say that we bring our personal lives into work and we take our work lives back home. So both of those um, uh, websites are very relevant. And one of the things that uh, will pop up on either one of them is the ability to sign up for our weekly Friday, uh, what we call essays or short newsletters. Uh, that's called TED Works with a uh, asterisks, uh, and we would encourage people if this is uh, really speaking to them, a way to keep this way of thinking and being in front of you is subscribe to that uh, short newsletter. Awesome. I know I look forward to it every Friday, uh, showing up and being able to refresh my my mind and heart around empowerment and ways that I can improve my own life. David, thank you for your time. If it doesn't say enough to both David and Donna's efforts, the fact that they're working hard to identify ways in which this work can impact generations to come, that is a calling. And that is something that I'm so proud to uh, be acquainted with you and to know of your commitment to helping people reduce the drama in their life. But more than anything, tap into the Creator has been divinely appointed that each of us have that we're inclined to lean into. And so thank you so much for your time, David. We're going to shift over to Donna, our friend. Thank you, Art. Thank you, David. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in. hope you're enjoying this week's episode. If growth, personal growth and development is your thing and you're here learning and leaning into growth, glad you're here, glad you're part of the community. If you want more of this, Make sure and hit subscribe in this podcast platform or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Search for Honor the Gift podcast and make sure and subscribe so that it shows up each week with new updates, new conversations, new learning, new ideas and concepts, again, to help us all in this journey we call growth and how we make it through life. 
and the way that we show up for others. Also, if you are looking for more information, deeper dives into some of these conversations, and just an update to stay in the loop, you can always go to choiceisthegift.com and click on subscribe where you'll be uh, in the loop on things that are upcoming and more updates on this podcast. Again, thank you for being here. Now let's get back to the episode. Hi, Art. I'm you've been here. waiting patiently, and I'm sure you've been taking notes and you're anxious to share some of your thoughts with us. But thank you so much for being here. I've had an opportunity to interface with you and David on separate occasions, and you're such wonderful compliments to one another in the way that you build and create together. So co-creators by nature. Yes. And I appreciate that. So Donna, why don't you bring the audience up to speed on your background and your journey to here? Yes. Well, thank you, Art, and good to talk with you and be with you again. So I grew up in a very small little town in the Missouri Ozarks and very interested in healthcare from an early start. Uh, spent several years after college in psychiatric nursing, became interested in public health policy, uh, which we're now understanding through what we're living through the last year, year or two. Uh, how important it is to understand public health policy. And from there, I got interested in politics, ran for the Oregon legislature, spent about 10 years in elected service, uh, attempting to change the world through public policy. Um, dropped out, uh, partly starting a family, uh, and also finding it difficult to, to work through uh, leadership and changing the world through politics. And that was some years ago. Um, after a while, I found coaching. And so now for about 20 years, I've been in the field of coaching as a professional coach, and now very proud to have the Master Certified Coach uh, uh, credential. And so I've partnered with David in this work in the last few years, especially turning my attention to how do you coach with the empowerment dynamic and uh, um, teach classes. I've had hundreds of coaches go through the coaching course. So that's just a very quick look and excited to get into uh, your questions. Yeah. Thank you for that introduction. Um, I guess the first question that I would have is, is it even possible to reduce the drama in your life from a coach's standpoint? No, I wouldn't say it's possible because that's not who we are as human beings. We are problem focused in that our neurology looks for threats and what we should be concerned about, and that's our ancestors survived because of that neurology. So we're always going to have an extra antenna for what's wrong in our life. The question is, how do we respond to it? What do we focus on that, that evokes an inner state, an emotional state that is going to help us uh, have more of a choice? about the steps and the, the way we respond to what comes up, or are we going to allow it to overwhelm us and then we get into the three drama triangle roles? So we're always going to have challenges. It's the first question of what am I focusing on and how am I relating to this? Uh, but we're always going to get triggered. Hopefully we get triggered and see it faster so we can transform it sooner. Very good. I uh, appreciate that. And I think that that's important. I think sometimes we're always trying to eliminate things from our life that are already there, that, that are going to be there, continue to be there. So rather than elimination, how do we then work with it? And so let's go to maybe another question. And this is an interesting question to ask uh, somebody that's coaching other coaches, developing a uh, coaching framework around these principles. What are you learning? I love your questions. What am I learning? Well, I'm, I'm learning how normal we are. Uh, all of us seem to have similar patterns as human beings, and I'm learning the more we can normalize those patterns, the more success we're going to have with being our own best friend, to be with those patterns. And if we can see that in ourselves and be that in ourselves as coaches, we're going to partner with others in a way that we do a whole lot less judging of wherever they are, of what their story is. Uh, and when we can do that, now we're creating an environment, um, the phrase that is so common now is a psychological safety space, so that people are able to look uh, at their own internal life that maybe until now has been really too scary to look at, but it's still there. It's like the iceberg. It's operating underneath the waterline more than maybe uh, we want to realize. So what I'm learning is to normalize, be kind to ourselves, 
see it first in ourselves as coaches so that when we partner with others, we show up with real deep space of safety and, and openness. We mentioned earlier as we were talking, uh, David and I, and gave you a heads up. I know you were listening intently in the background. Talk about internal drama because you talked about this, this you know, learning about these patterns and, and these places of safety. How often in your coaching do you see individuals or work with individuals that are more laden with internal drama than they are external drama? <laughs> well, I would say that's the norm. Uh, although we may not be fully conscious of it because you know, the way our minds really work is that it's an inside-out process. We're in a relationship with ourself first, but we have convinced ourselves that it's external circumstances. It's the boss, it's the co-worker, it's the partner at home, it's not enough money. It's everything externally that is causing me to feel the way I am. So when people first learn the drama triangle and Ted roles, oftentimes they look outward like, who is persecuting me? What is rescuing me? What am I feeling victim to? But when we, one of the things I love about the drama triangle roles and the TED roles is that they accelerate our ability to self-observe and they wake up our inner, our inner observer. And when this begins to happen, well, first, if we're with a partner or someone that, uh, a friend listening to a podcast and we can understand that this is a normal psychological awakening process, to support us to be more conscious, we can then start noticing how we're relating to ourselves and how these roles are operating inside ourselves and nothing else is going on. It's all inside of ourselves. And it took me a while to wake up to this inner drama aspect because, again, we're so convinced that it's everything out there that's impacting how we see ourselves. Does that resonate with you? <laughs> yeah, certainly. In fact, it brings up maybe some additional questions, and I'll ask you to maybe give an example of, of this internal drama. What I want to understand, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, in the drama triangle, there's a requisite, a requirement to have each of the three characters represented to continue and perpetuate or to, to substantiate the foundation for that drama. And so it, when it comes to personal perpetuation. We come in and out of those roles, at least I've noticed for myself, when I'm in internal drama, a lot of times I'm playing each of those roles because of the necessity in which they need to exist. Can you give us maybe an example of that and what you're seeing around that internal perpetuation? Yes. Well, I often say uh, that all three of the roles are based upon a victim mentality. The victim mentality is life is happening to me, but then what the geniuses of Dr. Cartman spelled out is that, that there's this three primary archetypal ways that we respond to the anxiety we feel about what's happening, we say, to me. The victim, we become powerless, we maybe distance ourselves, give up taking responsibility. The persecutor, we lean against, try to take control. And when that dynamic uh, is set up, then that part of us that wants to rush in and soothe and, you know, help with pleasing and taking care of that conflict. So all three of these aspects are part of us. They're all part of who the, the human psychic is, of how we've learned the anxiety management system. So that's occurring inside of us, whether we're aware of it or not. And I had an epiphany a few years ago where this, all three of these roles showed up in the same second. Would it be all right if I took just a moment to tell this story? Absolutely. Please do. So I love flowers and gardening. We're, we live in a small house here uh, outside of Seattle. And um, on the south end of our island, there's a gorgeous homes with spectacular gardens and views of the Olympic Mountains. One Sunday afternoon, I was walking and uh, as I enjoyed looking out at these gardens, I heard a part of me, a voice say inside of me, Donna, why do you come out here? You just upset yourself because your gardens are not as pretty as these. And I paused, I heard that voice, and then I heard another one says, yes, that's right. Why don't you go on back home and not make this anxiety worse? I literally turned around and headed back to the car. 
Now, I'll tell you the rest of the story in just a moment, but what I learned in debriefing is that in that moment, I had a victim story, I had an inner persecutor story, and then a rescuer showed up and said, okay, why don't you just go back home? Is that addressing this phenomena of the ongoing nature of all three of them had to be occurring to keep that inner drama going? Right. Uh, and that's when we pause, when we can hear that. We realized we've gone through a amygdala hijack in terms of the neurology. We've created a tremendous anxiety within ourselves, but we can interrupt it if any one of those roles didn't want to play along. And that's where we pause, we breathe. And so the rest of the story was the quiet creator in me, before I got to the car, said, wait a minute, Donna, what do you want? And I was able to say, I want to enjoy this day. I want to enjoy the awe and the majesty of this beauty. And I turned around and I changed my focus. I went back within a few feet. There was a beautiful flower. I got down on my knee. I looked at the internal of this beautiful color and the fragrance. And I was bowled over with awe and mystery. And so by interrupting that internal drama, we can change our perspective. So that's how the epiphany, because nothing changed. The gardens were still there. The gorgeous sunny day, the mountains were there. Nothing changed. The only thing changed was I was able to catch myself because of the beauty of these roles. It accelerates our ability to self-observe how we're relating in the moment. Powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. And what you brought up is it happens instantaneously. Sometimes subconsciously, we don't even realize how we might be hijacking ourselves, putting up roadblocks from leaning into that creative side. And so to know the characters, to know ourselves, to spend time, as you mentioned, stop, breathe, take a moment, ask yourself a new question, comes back to that concept of a question, gives your your brain something to solve for. Yes. Asking yourself what you wanted gave you an opportunity to identify a new path. Yes, and that's what I so appreciate what David has done of the empowerment dynamic roles. Uh, you know, as a coach, we, we say, yes, something maybe has happened in your past, but where do you want to go? Where, what do you want to create? And with the, the clarifying of the creator, challenger, coach roles, it allows us to have a place to go. And that's where we feel is the natural creative essence of who we are as human beings, where we would not have grown into what's who we are. But there's something about naming both the drama roles and the TED roles that gives us, as David says, this continuum, this choice point of where where do we want to go. And so many people say, okay, well, now that I've learned about your work, just tell me the three things I should do. <laughs> To make sure that I live in the empowerment dynamic more often. And you mentioned what are some of the coaching struggles. Well, well, that's one of them, is to resist telling your clients, if you just did these three things, you would uh, forever live in the empowerment dynamic. And we know that's not true. <laughs> yeah. So let's stick on that topic for a minute. What are some of the common stumbling blocks that coaches experience around drama? And, you know, even in that same space, I think that there's often times of confusion that coaching is telling somebody what to do. The purest form of coaching is asking good questions and understanding that the client has all of the power, all of the knowledge, all of the experience and intuition someplace inside to be able to solve for the things that they are challenged with. So speak to us about some of the common roadblocks we see on the coaching side and then maybe on the client side in, in some of this dynamic. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, coaches are... People who want to help, who want to support. And so there is this DNA in most all of us that are in the human development field that we love to learn and grow. And we love to be in relationships and be a catalyst for others learning and growing. So one of the things that is um, fraught with concern for us as coaches is overstepping our boundaries and how much we uh, try to fix and change others. And when I say the word fix, we first must understand how do we see the other? Uh, do we see them as whole, resourceful, complete? Do we see them as creators? Because if we do, then we partner with them in a way that, that helps with inquiry, absolutely, deep listening, curiosity, the skills of a coach, to help them discover what they want. But one of the dangers is, is, is that in our desire, even our almost obsessiveness to want to be helpful, we can unknowingly 
step into the rescuer role by giving lots of suggestions, uh, by interrupting, not really deeply listening. And uh, this is more common than you might think because uh, when David spoke about the mindsets, you know, this continuum, are we focusing on problems and the anxiety that rises? Most of our clients show up to our meetings with a problem, something they don't like, don't want. That's why they're in a coaching relationship. They're wanting something. So we coaches can get triggered by that and can step in and be in a problem-solving mode. And if that's all we ever do is just respond to the complaint and the problem, we will not notice their emotions. You know, we will never ask them about their dreams, what they care about. We will stay in the problem-solving mode. And we absolutely have to problem-solve. But we can limit our capacity as coaches and limit the growth of our clients if we get triggered by simply staying in, in that problem solving. So that's definitely one of the struggles. Uh, I'll stop with that and we can build on it, but uh, curious to see if you have anything to respond to with that. Yeah, I see that often. I think one of the terms that has been shared with me is spiraling down. Um, we tend to dig and dig and dig and try to navigate the challenge, navigate the past, stay in that place of, of problem and, and challenge identification. When my understanding and, and my belief is that coaching is about the go forward. So when we look at the parallel or how it dovetails into the creator mindset, it doesn't leave a lot of space for backwards navigation or solving problems. And, and even times, you know, if, if, if somebody's having, this is maybe something I see on the coaching side as well, uh, where we're challenged in that client relationship. If a client brings to the table challenges that they've had in the past that they're having a difficult time letting go of or navigating their way through or having it continue to come up as something of significance in their life, I find that it's wise to to send them or refer them to a professional that can help on a therapy side of things or working through some of those challenges that keep showing up on the on the past. It moves more into, okay, given that, given the current circumstance, given my assessment of now, what occurs to me moving forward? Mm -hmm. Well, and that's an important fine line for we as coaches to know when to refer if there is a reoccurring and especially there's so much trauma in the world we know uh, how um, uh, recovering from trauma is uh, very important to get the balance of the appropriate psychological help. My background is in mental health nursing, so I'm pretty mm -hmm. sensitive to that. But one of the things that we could leave uh, your listeners with is is the idea to uh, coach the problem, coach the person's relationship to the problem, mm -hmm. not the problem itself. So how are they relating? How do they see themselves relating? Because the cycle of the reoccurring drama, if you're stepping into it as a coach and doing problem solving, you're limiting uh, listening to their relationship to the problem. The other thing I would suggest is that we absolutely have to problem solve and our clients are decision makers and they need to solve problems. The question is in service to what? Mm -hmm. For what purpose are they solving the problem? Have they clarified the outcome they really want? Uh, and the outcome is, is, is usually much more uh, intrinsic. It's more values-based, more longer term. You've got to go looking for then what problems do you need to solve in order to manifest and get a little closer every time you take a step to that elk. So yes, you problem solve, but it's in service to what? And when you, you can ask your client and you as a coach create that space to step back, what is it you really care about? What is it you're wanting here? What's the outcome you want? And an outcome is, you know, can't be just, you just want the problem to go away. You can now maybe get through that reoccurring situation that is so repetitive and triggers, take a look at the triggers. I often say as a coach, learn to love your triggers because that's where your unexpressed needs are occurring. And when you can go into that space, now you have a whole new opportunity to coach and work with what are the needs that have gone underground, that have been numbed or ignored in order to break the interrupt and interrupt the cycle of that reoccurring drama. You mentioned, how am I relating? I know that that's one of the three vital questions. How have you found 3BQ to be an integral part of your coaching model? 
Oh, it's huge. Uh, you know, the, their questions. So in a sense, uh, questions themselves create a coaching inquiry. And uh, what I love, it's, it's like it becomes this energetic space to look. And uh, depending on where a person is in their willingness and openness to look, what's going on underneath the waterline in our iceberg metaphor, uh, the questions of what am, what am I focusing on meets that client wherever they are in their openness and stages and readiness to change in their level of psychological development. Where am I relating to myself? Again, it's very expansive uh, to, and that's what we're looking for, isn't it? Is frameworks and tools that create this really big tent to allow people to be where they are in their development. Uh, so they're absolutely essential I call my work coaching with the empowerment dynamic uh, and the three vital questions is this container of how we look and see an inquiry in, into how to manifest being that creator challenger and coach we want more often. So with your work, I heard that you might be working on something new and exciting. What is that? Well, I wrote down here is, uh, what are you excited about? So I knew that uh, I'm in my last uh, second round of editing with uh, my book uh, around coaching with empowerment dynamics. So thank you for allowing me to share that. We're in the final stages of, um, before it heads to the copy editor and final design. And it will be the anchor kind of. Uh, for me, for the coaching and the coaching courses that I offer, uh, one goes to the Empowerment Dynamic, or excuse me, thepowerofted.com. You can read more about the coaching course I teach. And uh, when the book is uh, published um, first quarter of next year, we will be accelerating the offerings around how to coach and share share this work. You know, and, and, and what I love is because the rescuer to coach shift is so inherent here. Uh, but as we say so often, you do not have to be a professional coach to learn the qualities of how to inquire, how to ask great questions, how to see the other as a creator and interrupt what is so common is telling people what they think what you think they should do uh, we do that all day long with family and neighbors and co-workers we can all learn to be more coach-like in the way we partner with others and and so that's where I'm excited about uh, the coaching with empowerment dynamic and this especially accelerating the um, relationship with the coach the rescuer to coach ship awesome I can't wait to uh to read it. I know it will be wonderful. Uh, I shared this, I think, with both of you at one point. The Power of Ted is in my, it's on my top 10 of all time books list. It's found such a significant place in my life. And I think to speak to what you just mentioned, Donna, is it may not necessarily be about coaching. Certainly we have applications to show up in a way where we're contributing and, and helping others. But for me, in looking at the respective stewardships that I have in my life. First, a spouse. Second, a parent. And then I, I obviously have other roles with regards to a coach and, and being in community and being part of a team and organizations. But for me, at the very root is what can I do to personally show up in a bigger way and honor the stewardships that I've been given, that I've been blessed with. And in that, I think finding those ways to engage not only in the development of ourselves, but in the, the development and fostering of others as they experience their own journey. And we have an opportunity to share the things that we've learned along the way and then offer them for consideration and invitation only. So appreciate your, your thoughts on that. Um, the last thing I would ask you is the same question I asked David. It's what does living true mean for Donna? Uh, yeah, it is a, that's such a super question. I, what first came to mind for me is continuous learning continuous looking, courageous seeing, seeing the truth, and uh, asking myself to be in a place with relationship to me. Who am I in my continuous learning? Uh, here's the question for both of you as we wrap up. 30 seconds. Start with you, Donna. 30 seconds of your best piece of advice. Uh, for me, the question is, what's my intention? 
uh, when I reflect upon what's my intention uh, in that, uh, do I want to fix? Do I want to change? Do I want to win? Do I want to be one up? The answer to that is going to guide me about how I relate to myself and how I relate to others. Wonderful. David, 30 seconds, best piece of advice. Remember that you cannot not choose and remember that you cannot not create. And to pause, to reflect, and to ask yourself the three vital questions of what do I want? You know, what, where am I putting my focus? And with that, what do I want in my life? Uh, how am I relating to others, my life experience, and myself? And what baby step actions can I take to be of service, uh, to be a good steward of my time, talent, and resources in service to those outcomes? Wonderful pieces of advice. Thank you, David and Donna. You've been wonderful guests. You're always so gracious to share your insight and experience. I love you both, and I'm thankful to know you. Um, for the listeners, you know, we've talked about a couple of different books here. The Power of Ted, if you haven't read it, go get it, order it. It will be a treasure on your bookshelf. It'll be a treasure in your life. Three vital questions. Again, the power of great questions, the organizational application, and just internal application of challenging ourselves to think, to solve for something, to be creators. Both of those books are fantastic. Uh, Donna has a book in the wings, getting ready to complete. We'll keep you posted and updated on that. Remember that growth is always a choice. Until next week, my friends, make it a great one. And remember to always honor the gift.